You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous. The podcast about Broadway flops, scandals, and new work. I'm your host, Ebony Vines. And I'm your host, Pamela Shandro. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Theater Geeks Anonymous podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network and all your favorite podcast listening apps. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> What's up, theater geeks? What is up? It's been almost two months. I think the last time we published something was Dodie and Diana in like the middle of October. All right. Well, we're going to we dive start in. start the episode. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> I mean... So this week's episode, Geeks, is about a musical called Dance a Little Closer, which I don't believe is is too terribly obscure because I know a lot of people like songs from the show. Yes. And um, there was like so much material on this musical. Great. That was one of the shortest lived musicals that we have ever spoken of. Oh, oh, I'm intrigued. Okay. Yeah. Like the music yeah. is sort of in the canon. I mean, it's Charles Strauss and Alan mm-hmm. J. Lerner, right? So it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. But it's just so interesting how short-lived this show is. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. Dance a Little Closer is based on Robert Sherwood's play, Idiot's Delight. It's from 1936. Um, uh, as usual, one of my sources is going to be Wikipedia, but I also have used Not Since Carrie, Second Act Trouble, The Rutledge Guide to Broadway, The Happiest Corpse I've Ever Seen, The Last 25 Years of Broadway <laughs> Musicals by Ethan Morden, um, A Lyricist Letters, The Letters of Alan J. Lerner, Frank Rich's New York Times Critique from May 12, 1983, and also the book Our Musicals Ourselves by John Bush Jones. For other uh, resources, I'll be referencing them within the um, within the, the course of this conversation. Awesome. So, um, but there was just a lot. <laughs> it was <laughs> it like really. Like it. <laughs> I, I know it was like so fascinating to see so much. Okay. So according to Wikipedia, it, Idiot's Delight is a 1936 Pulitzer Prize winning play written by Robert E. Sherwood, and it was presented by the Theater Guild. The play takes place in Hotel Monte, I'm sorry, Hotel Monte Gabriel in the Italian Alps during 24 hours at the beginning of a world war. 
The guests are trapped in the hotel by the sudden onset hostilities uh, from Germany and France between the United States and Britain. It was the original play was directed by Pretend Windust. The cast starred Alfred Lunt, who played Harry Van, and Lynn Fontaine, who played Irene. These two were married. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And the play was essentially like a vehicle for the two of them to do something together. Cool. Um, uh, it also starred Sydney Greenstreet as Dr. Waldersee and uh, Francis Compton as Akil Weber. The play was nominated for the 1936 New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best American Play. And um, he asked, like, this was the first of four Pulitzer Prizes for Sherwood. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, I mean, so, we're getting off to a great foot here because this sounds like an awesome play. <laughs> I know. I know. And so a little bit about the production of the original play. Idiot's Delight had a pre-Broadway tryout at the National Theater in D.C. It started on March 9th of 1936 and premiered on Broadway at the Schubert Theater, running from March 24th to 1936 to July 4th, 1936. Uh, I guess it opened a few times because it says and from August 31st, 1936 to January 30th, 1937 for a total of 300 performances. The play won, like I said, the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it also, uh, and Sherwood, he had won those four Pulitzers. Three were for drama and one was for a biography. The Pulitzer jury wrote of the play, we're absolutely in complete agreement in recommending Idiot's Delight. It is a first-rate play full of dramatic invention and one or two of the comedy scenes have a mole, mole, Moliere, mm, <laughs> Moliere, ah, uh, okay, Moliere, okay? <laughs> it feels like Moliere. I cannot get this word. Apologies. I'm stop. I'm not going to continue to try it's because cool. it's just terrible. It's cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, Sherwood adapted his play into a 1939 film of the same name, starring Norma Shearer and Clark Gable. Oh, called yes. Idiot's Delight. Yes, it is. It's called Idiot's nice. Delight, and you can actually rent it for $2.99 on Amazon. Nice. I bet that was really good. I like those two actors. I do too. I do too. A yeah. bunch of the other cast members are really cool as well. Nice. The New York City Th Theater Company presented a revival at New York City Center from May 23rd, 1951 to June 3rd of 1951. That was directed by George Schaefer. The cast featured Lee Tracy and Ruth Chatterton. The play was produced at the Kennedy Center in the Eisenhower Theater in D.C. in March of 1986, directed by Peter Sellers. You'll note that this is three years after the musical because the musical took place in 1983. Yes. So they did the play again. Yes. They were like, mm -hmm. let's cleanse the palate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, as as I go on, like you'll also learn the musical has many changes. So it's like. It feels like the play, but it's also much different and it's put in yeah. a different time period and, and other oh. things. So 
Well, that makes I'm, sense. I'm interested to hear that because it seems to me that the importance of that play is that it was the day that this war was started. Right. Right. Okay. So this will be interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it shall be. <laughs> so as I stated at the beginning of the pod, the music is by Charles Strauss and the book and lyrics are by Alan J. Lerner. Alan J. Lerner had been developing the idea since 1971, but it was officially announced in May of 1981. He said in an interview, there's not much to say except we're doing it and love it and are optimistic about it. Okay. The show was intended to be a vehicle for his wife, Liz Robertson. Now, she was his eighth wife and 36 (laughs) years his junior. Oh, my goodness. But also... This was the last one. Okay. (laughs) Because he just got tired or because this was a love match? (laughs) Well, he, I mean, he, he passed away. Oh, okay. So he, they were married until he passed away. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, When, okay. So he was developing it and then he read an article in Variety that said, like, the creative team had, like, been put together and the casting had been put together. And he was like, none of this has happened. Why is this in a gossip column in Variety? None of this has happened. So he wrote the producer, Frederick Bison, and he asked him to keep everything quiet. And I'm going to read the letter. Okay. <laughs> All right, to Frederick Bison, Bryson from November 30th of 1981. Again, this is from the book I mentioned, The Alyricist Letters, The Letters of Alan J. Lerner. Dear Freddie, I noticed a story in Variety about Idiot's Delight, which included the names of both Herb Ross and Twyla Tharp. Even James Coburn's name snuck in. I feel very strongly that that as much as is possible, we should keep the publicity under wraps and only publicize the facts when they become facts. As you know, Twyla Tharp, who incidentally impressed Charles and me very much indeed, also wants to direct as well as choreograph. Whether she's short or not is unimportant at this moment, but we (laughs) did tell her that we would not be showing the play to anyone else until we meet again on February 8th. And she is given the complete first act to read. If her enthusiasm is such that she becomes involved emotionally with the project, it will be easier at that time to discuss what her function will actually be. But I certainly don't want to seem like a liar when I tell her no one else has seen the play until that date. (laughs) Neither Charles nor I said anything about James Coburn, but I believe he has been telling people about it, which is his business, I suppose. If the press at any time ask any of us about it, I think we should merely tell the truth, which is that there has been a discussion with him, but nothing is definite. As of this moment, all that I know to be true is that Charles Strauss and I are writing it, you are producing it, and Liz Robertson will be the leading lady, whether it be done in America first or in England. The truth of the matter is I would probably not have written the play in the first place if it hadn't been for my desire to write a vehicle for Liz, whose talents, as you will see from her television show, are vast and varied. 
In fact, I say this quite objectively, I don't know anyone on either side of the ocean who can do everything from operetta to raunchy pop the way she can. <laughs> Charles and I finished another song while I was in New York, which makes seven so far. My plan at the moment is to be back in New York mid-January for a month, and then Charles will return to London with me for a month mid-February. It was good talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you a week from Thursday, which turns out to be December the 10th. Fondly, Alan. He's a good letter writer. I know. I mean, he is a <laughs> he's a screenwriter or like a playwright, but right. <laughs> but that was good. That was well written. Yes. <laughs> it got to the point. It was not emotional. And I love how he spoke about his wife. I think yeah. that, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He really, he really adored her. Yeah. Um, and I'll read just like a little snippet from another letter later on where he talks okay. about about her um after, you know. You all know this show, so you know what's going to happen, but like, <laughs> it's quite beautiful. Uh, something that he says later after, you know, what happens. Okay. <laughs> Spoilers. Mm -hmm. In February of 1982, which is referenced in that letter, it mm -hmm. was decided that Lerner would direct the production. He said, someone has to look down the road to see what the play should be. And I think I have that vision. He had taken over Camelot before and Gigi, but without credit. So Dance a Little Closer was his first official directing credit. Okay. Now I will also add that this was also his last musical that he wrote. Okay. Because he then passed? Yes. Is that? Okay. And I, do you happen to know if Twyla Tharp was at all connected then? Or did she just, she was just dismissed at that point? Well, I... When I get to like the choreographer and all of that, okay. you know, cool, cool, you'll cool. know, but, but <laughs> definitely she didn't direct it. Yeah. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. So the show was supposed to be put into rehearsals on August in August, sorry, of 82. And then it was meant to arrive on Broadway that following December, but unfortunately okay. it wasn't ready. Okay. Also, Bryson was struggling to find backing for the show. He stated in an interview that he'd had he'd done 21 shows on Broadway, and this was the first time he wasn't overcapitalized. Huh. That's kind of a slap to the face, isn't it? I know. Especially when you have, you know, Strauss and Lerner. Right. Well, it's also like I'm I, <laughs> for him to say while he is looking and asking for money that he's surprised that this one isn't ha like it, it kind of like makes me lose confidence. If I had money to spend on a show, I I'm not sure I would have confidence in this show. If I was hearing the producer saying that he was having so much trouble, it's yeah. like, you know, <laughs> and you know, maybe I think about the, the, the year, right. We're talking mm -hmm. 81, 82, 83. Yeah. And you know, he, this was not a good time for New York City. Like New mm. York City was about to be um, on the brink of like bankruptcy. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, kids who had school running between avenues so they didn't get mugged. Wow. Yeah. Like, obviously, friends well, who are adults now, but when they were children, yeah. they had to yeah. do that. Well, I mean, and there is something to be said about New York in the 80s being a real cesspool as far as 
just it being overrun by degenerates and otherwise bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and the story that I'm referring to about running, I mean, that was happening where the theaters were right. Like, like literally. Yeah. And on Broadway, who wants to to come into New York city and see a show and then potentially lose all your money. That would be really awful. Right. And if they're doing that to children. Right. Mm hmm. Oh, gracious sakes. So I'm sort of like not super surprised he's having difficulty, but I'm, I'm also like, but it's Alan J. Lerner and Charles Strauss. And like, they both have this storied past with like a lot of musicals that were quite successful. Um, so it's sort of like a mixed bag because some shows Mm -hmm. were still successful in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't until 86 that everything was like (laughs) like 86 was the year of flops yeah really really was but I feel like up until that point it really wasn't like that I mean yeah it was like a a good mix of good and bad there wasn't really any standout but there wasn't any real flop flops you know right right Mm -hmm. yep that's true all right so opening night cast was Len Carew as Harry Akins love Uh him and this was like (laughs) right off of Sweeney like immediately after okay Liz Robertson as I stated she played Cynthia Brookfield Bailey George Rose was Dr. Joseph Winkler uh Brent Barrett was Charles Castleton how old was he then uh he's been around a long time I didn't realize he did but he was like doing it in the 80s I I honestly don't know how okay. old we would have to look that up. I don't know, but yeah, maybe I'll just I'll just ask the Google machine while you keep talking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don Chastain was Roger Butterfield. Noel Craig was Captain Mueller. And I am Hobson was Reverend Oliver Boyle. Cheryl Howard was BB. She was one of the delights, which was like this singing group that. Um, that sang with um, Len's character, but I'm going to give you all a synopsis of the the musical. Don't worry. Okay. And I'm uh, just going to interject here. He was born in 57. Oh, I did okay. not realize that. Well, there you he's go. A, he's older than I thought. Anyway, I love him. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Been working a long time. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And then Elizabeth Hubbard was Contessa Carla Piriano, Jeff Keller, Edward Dunlop, Joseph Kolinsky, Henrik Holloway, Diane Pennington, Shirley, another one of the delights, Allison Reed, her name was Elaine in the show, and she was also a delight. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, for the production staff, so it was produced by Frederick Bryson, as I've said before, Jerome Minskoff, James M. Niederlander, um, the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, and associate producer was Paul N. Temple. Uh, the music was orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick. I already told you who the lyrics in book were by. <laughs> um, it's funny here. It says the director was Peter Howard. Huh. So, or muse, I'm sorry, musical director. There oh, we go. Okay. Then dance music was Glenn Kelly. 
Yes, directed by Alan J. Lerner, musical staging by Billy Wilson, and it was choreographed by Billy Wilson. So that tells you what happened. Oh, okay. Maybe she didn't want any part of it after like she didn't if she wasn't directing because I do remember Twyla Tharp was kind of like it's all or nothing right Mm -hmm. she wanted she had consistently been director and choreographer at that point yeah or at least maybe that's when she was starting to do that yeah that or maybe she wasn't maybe she just couldn't get an emotional investment it's possible yeah I know I, I watched her documentary and um there's also like a part where I don't know what, when this was, but that like, she was in her home upstate for quite a while. There's the, these like wonderful videos of her, like very pregnant dancing in her attic. Um, Cause <laughs> she was just continuing to like produce direct yeah. choreograph it, you know, as much as she could then. And so, I mean, who, who knows that I will say I, uh, there's lots of information, but I didn't dig into the Twilight Tharp situation because there was so much other stuff sure (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but um you know uh, there could be you know several several reasons for it um and then also important is scenic design was by david mitchell costume design by donald brooks lighting design by thomas skelton sound design by john mcclure and hair design by joe tubins okay Lerner stated that he tried to maintain the overall structure of the original play, but update it for the current times and replace some characters with ones that would be more relevant for today. So now I will give you all just like a brief summary of uh, synopsis of the show. Okay, this is from guide to musicaltheater.com. Usually theirs are really short, so I don't actually usually read theirs um, mm. because I like something it's got a little bit more yes. heft, but this one's pretty good. Okay. And it's not forever long. Okay. It is New Year's Eve again at the Barclay Palace Hotel in the Austrian Alps in the avoidable future. But oh. not so, uh-huh, that's what they call it, in the avoidable future. But not so very far from the hotel in the Italian Alps, where Robert uh, Sherwood served up Idiot's Delight almost 50 years earlier. The intentional situation is still deteriorating, and the jet set crowd is dancing on the brink to the music of Harry Aikens and the Delights. Harry's love life is reflected in his act. It is a checkered record that was generally fun. A new year's past invades Henry's memory with a particular woman he could not possess. There had been an attraction, but not for her. At this point in the present, who should appear but a a double for the woman in Harry's past, the exotic Cynthia Brookfield Bailey. She appeared to feel that one is worth it. The uh, Kissinger-esque Dr. Joseph Winkler. So if you remember, there was a Kissinger, like actual character, like I talked about in the play and the movie, Mm -hmm. but this guy is like like that, but not named. Kissinger. <laughs> um, and his name is Dr. Joseph Winkler. When Cynthia denies ever having known Harry, he joins the left wing student Holloway in bemoaning the perfidy of governments and women. Cynthia's liaison with Winkler is not without its own questions. How much of an influence does Winkler have over the gathering war clouds? How much of an influence does Cynthia have over Winkler? Is she merely a woman who thinks Winkler is wonderful, or is she the woman from Harry's past? 
who has always obsessed him. Two of the other guests at the Barclay Palace Hotel believe in love, although not perhaps in the traditional mold. Charles and Edward wonder why the world cannot just leave them alone. In an ideal world, this might just happen, but then Harry isn't leaving Cynthia either. Her resemblance to the Cindy of his memory is too marked. <laughs> Cynthia and Cindy, come on, y'all. <laughs> oh, wow. That's not very innovative. Um, <laughs> uh, is too marked and her relationship to the roving Winkler too apparently tenuous. Cynthia keeps denying that Harry was a part of her past or that he is likely to be a part of her future. As for Winkler's famous wanderings, he always returns to Cynthia. By the time his nightclub act goes on that evening, however, Harry is convinced that he is a new girl. When word arrives that the frightening international situation is threatening to erupt in war, Cynthia turns momentarily to Harry. He is now certain that Cynthia is the girl of his past, even though she denies it. Act two opens with the hotel guests preparing to evacuate to safer climbs as war appears to be imminent and an airbase in the valley below is a likely military target. The hmm. Delights trio is glad to be heading home, but Harry is angry at the cancellation of the tour, mad at Cynthia, who has run back to Winkler, and mad at humanity in general. Faced with the probable war in, in which one or both may be killed, the lovers, Charles and Edward, feel it important to formalize their relationship, and they ask the Reverend Boyle to marry them. His position is firm. I don't know. But everyone else, there's a whole song called I Don't Know. But oh. you might know that because you like the show already. Yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, 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 it's jaunty. <laughs> it is. It's like, you know. Um, it actually, it kind of reminded me of Judy Garland's I Don't Care. I oh, don't yeah, care. totally. You know, yeah, it kind of reminded yeah. me of that. Okay. Anyway. Um. <laughs> But everyone else has an opinion to offer. The boy's commitment leads Cynthia to seek a commitment from Winkler, but he departs. Almost at the same time, Harry, tortured by Cynthia's denials of the past, declares he never wants to see her again, which leaves Cynthia stranded in her seeming glory, but alone. As the last bus leaves for the border, Harry returns. Whatever happened to the rest of the world, if he is to have a future, Cynthia must be a part of it. As the first air raid sirens sound, these two at least have found the potential for a personal piece. That's the show. Okay. I'm not sure that that sounded anything like the original. <laughs> well, I mean, in that, okay, so it is in that it's World War II yes. in the OG one, right? Instead of like a avoidable future when right. a potential world war three. Okay. And Cynthia went from being like a girl faking being Russian to a girl faking being British. Okay. And there's another huge piece where you have an LGBTQIA couple. And I did like, I mean, that was really an interesting uh, tidbit when you mentioned that I was like, Oh, <laughs> so yeah. that was cool. Yeah. And that, and that there is a whole song dedicated to that plot device which is kind of uh, really fascinating to me especially Absolutely. in the early 80s totally so um i'm going to read a little bit from the happiest corpse book just to give a little bit more uh 
understanding of the changes, right, from the original play and movie to this musical? Okay. All right, so um, Ethan Morden says, updating from the 1930s to something like 1983, the year of Dance a Little Closer's premiere means upgrading the potential disaster from World War to nuclear suicide. Mm. <laughs> Why not forget Sherwood and make a musical out of Dr. Strangelove? <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah. Then <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. Um, he said, then too, following the play faithfully in 40s, 50s fashion means that one's action in this case will be locked into a two-character play for one's final 15 minutes. Surely Jerry, Jerry Herman wouldn't let a libretto trap him into anything so naked, so spoken, so spoken play. Strauss and Lerner are left with nuclear war and no magical stars because he's, he felt like the Lunts were you know, the reason why the original play was so great, this writer. Um, and so he said, yeah, magical stars. That's what he means by no magical stars. Um, but he, this writer's, he says he's an adher adherent of the forties and fifties musical play, which reached its climax, like it or not with Camelot. Um, okay. I have another piece. That I would like to. Okay, so this is from the book Our Musicals Ourselves, which talks, this part talks a little bit about um, the change that was made with the LGBTQIA couple. Okay. Uh, Learner's open depiction of homosexuality in a Broadway musical for general audiences cannot go unremarked. Learner transformed what had been the heterosexual honeymoon couple of Sherwood's subplot into two gay male airline stewards and gave them their special moment in a sincere love duet called Why Can't the World Go and Leave Us Alone? The 83-year-old learner said he, so he wasn't 83. Learner? Yeah, I don't think that part's right. <laughs> That's what it says <laughs> in the book. Okay. Um, anyway, he was much, he was older though. Right. Um, he said he risked doing this because, and this is his quote, I wanted to make a statement about love being essential to all lifestyles. Mm -hmm. I have to admit some people have been critical of my including the two boys in the story, but I found you have to write something because you believe in it. Oh, I like that. I know. That's awesome. Good job, Alan. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to keep going with my notes here. All right, so it's in previews. I haven't gone to when it's opened yet. And if it's any indication about how it was liked or disliked, um, there was, you know how people have like mean nicknames when you're in high school yes. and they keep calling you that forever and ever. Um, I, I have to say, I was thankfully, I didn't have to deal with that, but like, I know wow. people who've had to deal with that. I was spammy. Oh, honey. Sometimes spam, sometimes spamala. Yeah. <laughs> they thought it was cute. <laughs> like they like it, like kids, some some kids are clever, but kids right. that stuff is dumb. No. Like I've never heard a good one. <laughs> Me neither. It's just why? Why? 
And they just think it's so funny. And it's like, if you tell them when they're grownups, they're like, oh my goodness, but I was a dummy. Yes, <laughs> we were. all were. I mean, like, honestly, we can all go back and think of 10 things just right off the top of our heads that we did that were just completely stupid when we were young. Stupid, but like mean, like that's yeah. also mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, of course I did stupid things, but like yeah. to no, perpetuate right. continued meanness in that mm-hmm. way is like, ugh. That kind, yeah, that bullying behavior. That's not cool. No. So unfortunately, something similar happened to Lerner and Strauss. Okay. So dance a little closer was mercilessly dubbed close a little faster. Oh. By who? See, it it that phrase was in so many books, but it was like who started it? I don't know. It was in like three of the books I read. <laughs> well, and I, you and I have, I think discussed this before, or maybe it's just in my own mind that we did, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it seems to me that a lot of the times that you and I feel like a show should have succeeded. Yeah. It doesn't because a critic put a thought into an audience, into an audience mind. And then it just wasn't popular anymore. You know, like Frank Rich could say something and absolutely destroy a show. And especially back then when the internet wasn't a thing and you really only had the newspapers to believe and to listen to. And if you're spending that amount of money, you're going to take Frank Rich's word for it because he only costs 25 cents to read (laughs) when it it costs, you know, $25 to go see a show at the time. Yeah. But that's so sad. I know. It's like, you didn't even like give it a chance. I mean, I will say it made the mistake that we always complain about is not trying out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so if it wasn't good in previews, it's like, we're not ready. You maybe need to try it out. They had a workshop uh, okay. that went really well, but like a workshop it was like one, you know, yeah. it's, that's not enough to like get the kinks out. Question. Sure. I mean, like, and this, and this is really, truly for shows that do have out of town tryouts and that don't have out of town tryouts. Okay. So you have these previews for a reason, but right. if the previews are not well received, the show still opens. And that always confuses me because it's like the previews should be another opportunity for you to be like, okay, hang on. We're just going to go back here. We're going to finagle a few things and then we'll come back and open for real. You know, and I guess, you know, money is obviously an issue. You don't want to lose out on the theater that you've rented, you know, like all of that stuff comes kind of comes into play, but what's the point of having previews if they're not for the purpose of making the show better like that. I, I don't know. I mean, am I, am I silly in saying this? I don't get it. <laughs> no, I mean, to me, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. that's why I think some of the shows that we've done, like they closed in previews, like they didn't yes. even go on. Yes. But I also wonder if it's a little bit of like the fiddler on the roof effect, right? Because fiddler on the roof had bad tryouts and they mm-hmm. had bad previews, but like they kept working on it so hard. It's like, I, um, but didn't, but they didn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't the same show from preview through. No, like they, they did were... so much work, so right. much work. And, and I guess so that's... much work at the tryout and the preview. Yes. And it had, I mean, it was like, 
I heard um, Austin Pendleton was my directing teacher. And so he told us like the story of it in tryouts as it got all the way to Broadway. Yeah. And, like it was a mess. It was a total mess. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, like they're in their hearts. They're, they all felt like this could be good. Mm -hmm. But they had so much trouble getting there. Yeah. And so sometimes I wonder if like people, you know, I, I, it doesn't seem to me from what I've read, you know, that Strauss and Lerner were just like, we're done. It's done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's that thing of like, you keep trying and you keep hoping, but you just still can never get it quite right. Now, I will also mention, because I just was thinking about this too, that there are shows that we've talked about that changed things so much during the previews and even to the point of changing directors Yeah, <laughs> that then they also didn't succeed for that reason as well. Right. So I guess it's my, yeah, it's just really, <laughs> you, I, I, I don't know. It's just like, you don't know how it's going to come out, but I, I mean, I agree with you. Like there's a lot we've done where I'm just like, why, yeah, why keep going? Yeah. Except that, you know, you do have a promise to your investors. Yes. You but know, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of, of good arguments mm-hmm. as to why t- to just continue, but then on the opposite side of things, there's an argument for stopping, right? So yes, yeah. you have this promise to these investors, but the promise to the investors is a successful show. Right. And so if you can say to the investors, hey, listen, our previews are not great. We're going to take two weeks to change things up, re-rehearse, and then come back. Again, though, time is hard because theaters sometimes are a commodity that does not come around very often. And if you have a theater that wants your show at this particular time and you say, we're not ready yet, they might say, okay, well, this show is, and we're going to go with them. So there is kind of that kind of pressure from that end too. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely I don't know the answer. I know. (laughs) I'm just a lowly podcaster. (laughs) <laughs> I, I did hear this statistic though this week. Yeah. Where, you know, cause we always were like 75% of shows don't see a profit. So we have yeah. like lots and lots of material. Yes. But it's up to 80 or 85 now. Whoa. That's the statistic I heard from my friends who are producers this Jeez. week. Yeah. I I mean, I guess from the outside looking in, it doesn't seem that way because we have so many like long running shows, but But I mean, we we don't even have as many right now because like, it's true. Well, they're all closing now. Right. Like the (laughs) only one, because Phantom, even though it pushed, you know, pushed its date, it's still closing. It's still closing, but you've still got Wicked and you've still got Lion King. Those are the two anchors. I guess it reminds me very much of like a mall Mm -hmm. where the anchor stores are like Macy's and Von Mar and Sears. Right. And (laughs) wait, what's one you said? Sears Von Mar. What's Von Mar? (laughs) It's just another big department store. Okay. Maybe it's just just an Illinois. Illinois Okay. I know it's in the Midwest. 
So maybe it is just a Midwest thing. Okay. Um, but you know, like if you, if a mall loses any one of those anchor stores, it's just a ghost town. And so like mm-hmm. going back to Bloomington, Illinois, the mall, there, well, there's two malls, college Hills did the good thing, right? So their mall used to be an indoor mall, just like every other mall in America in the eighties and nineties, they mm-hmm. decided they're going to completely redo it. It's an outdoor walking mall. So you've got all these little stores in clusters that you just walk from cluster to cluster, or you drive and park, you know, whatever. And target is within the vicinity. So that's kind of the anchor and you in targets, not going to go anywhere. Right. 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 Eastland mall, on the other hand, is an absolute ghost town. There are maybe a dozen stores still open, not a single anchor store. Wow. Well, I, unless you consider Old Navy an anchor store, and no, I don't, no. but it is, it is the only big, like big brand store <laughs> that's still there. It's crazy. And a little sad. Yeah. Well, it's like a Manhattan mall. Yeah. I used to go there all the time and now it's just gone. Anyway, we've gone off subject, but <laughs> I know y'all are used to, to it. <laughs> You're used to it. This is why you tune in. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, okay. I have, I, so this other book, um, called show and tell by Ken Bloom is from 2016. There's, it's so funny because the headline says four stories, but it's not four stories. It's like one story from Dance a Little Closer. Um, I am going to read it because it might also kind of help a little bit of understanding of it. Everything wasn't smooth sailing. Literally, that sailing will be a little bit of a pun when you (laughs) hear this. When when writing with Frederick Lowe, Alan J. Lerner sat by the piano while Lowe was composing. Lowe never liked composing, so Lerner would instruct him to just noodle on the piano. And when a worthy tune came up, Lerner would alert Lowe and they try to fashion it into a song. So when Lerner was writing with Charles Strauss on Dance a Little Closer, he asked Strauss to do the same since he was in the habit of working that way. Strauss found himself in a rowboat on the day on the bay of Naples going out to see Alan J. Lerner on his yacht for a working session on the show. As he approached the yacht, Strauss asked himself, what am I doing here? Both Sondheim and Bernstein had warned Strauss about working with Lerner. (laughs) Strauss had two rules about collaborating. One, never take drugs. And two, never get involved with the director or co-author Never get involved when the director or co-author is married to the leading lady. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Did he break both rules here or just the one? Oh, okay. Well, both. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Listen, I don't, I don't judge people. (laughs) (laughs) So while writing Dance a Little Closer, Strauss broke both rules. Oh, okay. (laughs) Lovely. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, And so he said he was, he was stricken with a bad back and was in great pain. Lerner was constantly on speed, supplied by Max Jacobs, a.k.a. Dr. Feelgood, which we've Uh, heard of. uh So he offered Strauss a drug to alleviate the pain. Strauss soon found himself in a fetal position on the floor of the bathroom, wanting to die and asking that his family be brought in one by one so he could say goodbye. I mean, he didn't die. 
What did they give him? Speed. Oh, they okay. <laughs> I he was know. high he, on I speed. Mean, I know Lerner was high on speed, but the I just assumed it was a different medication because you said no. it was for his back pain. Oh no. my gosh. He said so he offered Strauss a drug to elite to alleviate the pain. It was the speed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's awful. Uh-huh. And then it said, and rule number two, Alan J. Lerner was married to the show's leading lady, Liz Robertson, mm-hmm. right? So both. Yeah. Now I will say in that, I will completely agree with Strauss because it does not matter how talented that actor or actress is mm-hmm. when there is an emotional and also marital tie to anyone in the creative company, it's just never going to work out well ever. Right. Their personal business is going to be all up in it. Totally. I mean, and Lerner was directing. Yeah. I mean, that's a real, that's a real. You need a separation. There needs to be a separation of church and state there. (laughs) (laughs) A separation between the creatives as far as the playwright and composer and a separation between them and the director. Like there just has to be because there's. There's too many ideas flying around for one person to have so much control. And in Mm -hmm. fact, another sidebar, there have been shows that we've talked about, and I can't think of any of them offhand, but that where there has been one person that has done everything, they've written it, they've directed it, they were starring in it, and those shows never really last very long, do they? The only one I can think of that did was David Cameron Mitchell in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Right. Well, also, Lynn... Okay. Yes. Yes. But, <laughs> but that was different because he didn't direct it. Right. No, he didn't direct he it. In. I mean, he wrote he was, it and was in it, but he gave someone else the control of the overall picture. Right. The directing and the choreography were, you know, they're part of the cabinet. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. So <laughs> the, I mean, this is pretty much the end, right? <laughs> we're at, if it, if it's being called close a little faster, The show opened on May 11th, 1983 at the Minskoff Theater. It closed after only one performance at the Minskoff Theater. And as I stated, it was Lerner's last show and he passed away three years later of lung cancer. Mm. Yeah. That's sad. It is. It is. He'd had like, unfortunately, a string of shows that didn't, that were misfires. Okay. So, um... He was really trying and hoping, you know, this would be the one. And as I stated, I mean, he'd been working on it since 70, what did I say? 71. It was a long time. 10 years. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, it's sad. It is sad. It takes. Well, I mean, I think it's always sad when someone's dream and someone's heart doesn't, you know, doesn't find a place, doesn't find a, you know, a shelf to sit on. It just, it just made, it just sprinkles a little more sadness on it for me when like they also die like shortly after. Totally. I hate, they don't I, really, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, listen though, he did have a huge amount of success with totally, his career. He had three Tonys and three Oscars. It's like, he's fine. He's I'm not fine. worried about him. He's fine. <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> and, and the original playwright had four Pulitzers. Everybody is fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only ones who are not fine are us. <laughs> like also 
<laughs> Charles Strauss had Tonys. Everybody. Everyone did. Is okay. No, I mean, no, listen, and that I guess that's why it's also kind of disappointing is because you look at it from the outside yeah. and you see all of these big people, these big, incredibly talented and incredibly creative people all coming together yeah. to do a show based on an amazing script and an amazing yeah. idea and a Pulitzer winning script at that. And it just doesn't, it fizzles out. It doesn't pan. No, but I will say, you know, it was totally, it was panned by critics. Yeah. But one of the things that was so consistent and the critiques was, you know, the change to want to make it more relevant. And they were Mm -hmm. like, why didn't you just set it in the time period of the forties? And that's my big question. Yeah. Because it would have had much more impact emotionally and historically if they had just kept it there. Because even if, like, I wasn't born in the 30s or 40s, but I know the impact of World War II. Of course. I think everyone does because we're taught it like crazy in school and like it's affected us generationally speaking, mm-hmm. certainly because the boomers were the direct generate the direct descendants of the people that fought in that war. Right. And then right. their parenting style was, you know, anyway, let's not talk about generational trauma, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, it is impactful. So the idea that yeah. you would change it to something more abstract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't quite like, I guess I don't, I, it would be, it would be much harder as an audience member to invest myself in a story that's abstract than it would to invest myself in a story that I know, I know how it started and I know how it ended. And I know mm-hmm. that I know the impact of it on the world, right? right. Not just these couple of people in an, in a, a Swiss Alps, um, resort. You know what I mean? Like it's. That's true. And then just to add some more fuel to that, Hmm. another thing that they chose to do in the musical was a large part of the plot and sort of the tension of the play and the film were the main couple, like we didn't know whether or not they had actually known each other previously. So we're sort of looking through it, you know, we should have been looking through it in Len Carew, where he's like trying to figure out like, is this her or not? But right. what they chose to do in the musical was you knew there was a flashback. So it ruined all of yeah. that tension. It's it's interesting. I mean, if you really look at a piece of art, whether mm-hmm. that be a painting, whether that be a photograph, whether that be a TV show or a movie or a stage production. Mm-hmm. There has to be something within that artwork or within that whatever it is mm-hmm. that pulls your focus and creates an emotional tie to it. Right. Whatever that is. I mean, if you're looking at a piece of art, that's going to affect you in a different way than the next person. Right. right. But that's that's the amazing part about art. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a stage show, it is so difficult because you don't have the same tools as you do in a movie or in a TV show Mm -hmm. to create those heightened senses of emotion, right? Mm -hmm. You have to do it with the words and with the music, if it's a musical, but you have to do it in a way that makes the audience want to root for you. Right. In whatever way that is, root for you to fail or root for you to succeed, but there has to be some investment. Right. And if you've told us she's lying from jump, 
then I don't care. Right. I can't trust anything she says. If she's a liar, she's a liar. Right. But if we come in and she says that she's not the person, but it's a big old wink, wink, you're like, oh, Oh, right. you're like, I don't end? know. Right. Right. Because we, we don't know. Is she telling the truth? Yeah. Is she not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I don't, I mean, like I, I want Winkler and his relationship with her to have an impact on me, but I also want Harry's relationship with Cynthia to have an impact. Like I want yeah. And yes, you're right about that tension where you're like, yeah. oh man, who is she going to choose? Is That's this right. guy going to find out? What is he going to do when he does find out? What if he finds out that she was lying? It's not actually her. Is he going to have like a mental breakdown? Like what is going to happen? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, and if you don't have that, if everything is so obtuse that there are no real answers at the end, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like how unsatisfying is that to get to the end of the movie and not have any closure? Yeah. Do you know what I'm mean? like? Yeah. How many times have you like left a theater and you're like, I hated that because like, <laughs> what was the point? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, who cares? You leave mm-hmm. and you're like, eh, that was two hours. I'll never get back. And so like, I feel like it's even more so when you go to see a show and you leave that way. Cause yeah. you're like, oh, like, oh, I want it. Cause we all want them to we succeed. Do. That's the disappointment, I think, yeah. for for everybody. And that includes critics too, which I think why is why critics are so they're so black and white. Yeah. They th- either love it or they hate it. Like everyone wants you to succeed. And so when you don't meet our expectations, it can be such a disappointment. Yeah. No, it's truly. And I, we were talking about critics. I just thought about like Terry Teachout used to say that so often when I listened to him on three on the aisle, because he also was a playwright, but he wasn't like one of the embittered ones, (laughs) you know, who who writes like he, he, he was doing it, you know? And so Mm -hmm. because he was still doing it, he had like a, there was like a sensitivity there to sure. and, And also he was like sort of a theater geek on the inside. Yeah. And so he wanted everything to succeed and, and, and came at it from this perspective. I've also heard Peter Felicio say the same thing where, you know, they wanted to be good. And sometimes they were like, if it's just because it's not for me, doesn't mean Mm -hmm. it won't be for somebody else. And so it's my duty to say, you know, if it wasn't for me, these are the reasons why it wasn't for me, but you know, it could be for other folks. There's some people who are just mean. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole other story. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I mean, that a lot of the critiques here were like, I said, the tension that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also critiques on uh, people not. So there's also was like a whole skating rink that was there. And this whole like other piece of it with like professional skaters and, and it, it just seemed to muddy the story and add bulk to the set that like the critics were like, we don't need this. Yeah. Um, There was also um, critiques about the costumes feeling like hodgepodgey. It just kind of didn't feel cohesive is what I'm really picking up as a common theme between multiple reviews from critics. So, you know that, but that's like, the show. And as we said at the top of the pod, 
the music just continues to live on. And Mm -hmm. that was also something in a lot of the critiques where people were like, but the music and lyrics are great. (laughs) Well, there's no denying that both Strauss and Lerner are incredibly talented at what they do. So Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that the music stands. Yeah. Because they, both of them together and apart, Lerner and Lowe and Strauss and, um, who did he? It's not coming. It's I not coming. I'm sorry. Keep going. And I'll look, yelling, anyway, look it up. Clear, this is terrible. They're yelling at us right now. Um, and Strauss and his other partner that he used to work with, their music is Meehan. Me, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all right. Um, but their music, <clears throat> not all of it, but certainly they've got their little pinpoint songs from each show that stand alone and that are beautiful melodies and beautiful lyrics that that don't need a show to support them yeah so no, I'm not surprised true. at all even if it's well, there's, a, there's a lot of flops that we've talked about where this there are certain songs from those shows that are in all of the standard audition books yeah do you know what I mean like there's mm-hmm. you know that that's just I think that's, uh, that just, that just tells me that the talent level was there. It just, the stars didn't align for whatever Mm. reason. Yeah, no, that, that, and I, you know, the book could have been, it's like, could you, if the lyrics were changed, Mm -hmm. could you create a new book based around the original Yes. That kept it in the forties, right? I was actually going to ask you that question. Yeah. I mean, nobody's done it yet, but like, yeah. it feels like, you know, because dance a little closer is something that most of us know mm-hmm. the name of the show, but we don't know a lot about it. And nobody, yeah. I mean, most the people our age haven't really yeah. seen a production. Well, cause I mean, even, even this homosexual relationship within the show yeah. could be kept in the time and place that Sherwood placed it in originally. Mm-hmm. Because if you consider that the Nazis were not just after Jews, they were That's after right. homosexuals, they were after uh, gypsies. I, I know they're not called gypsies anymore, Romani but, people. Mean, the they whole were global after, majority. You know, if exactly. you were anything but Aryan, you were anything other dead. than blonde and blue eyed bi. And mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that would. I think that would add an element of, of real fear, like an underlying real fear. Like, have you, you, I'm sure you have, have you ever watched the diary of Anne Frank? Of course. There is this, this tension. Yeah. That sits under the entire show, even when they're laughing and talking and having, and having good relationships with each other, there is still this underlying tension. And it's because we know the ending before it starts. That's right. And there's something about that that is impactful. And I Mm -hmm. think in this case, if they had just kept it, there would be that tension underlying because we know what's about to happen and we know what the cost of that will be. Right. And even though they don't, their love triangle or their, you know, coming to terms with 
who is who and and who uh, who did I love and was it you and do I love you now like that kind of stuff right can be even more I don't know like uh, energized mm-hmm. because of that right fear because of that unknown quality right. that we know but that they don't right yeah I mean they did they it was uh, like I, I was when I was reading the synopsis of the musical, it felt like they had turned a period piece into a dystopian piece. Yeah. And there's a place for that. There, right. I, I love the idea of doing a dystopian musical. Metropolis is a complete dystopian musical. Oh. And I think it was also may have been a flop, but I loved that thing. Like that was a <laughs> that was a cool, but it was also based on a book. So it mm. had that source material. But the book was dystopian too, right? Yes. Yes. That See, that's the thing that I'm sort of getting at is that to turn something that was. Historical. Ba- yeah. It was based in, in something that happened into yeah. a dystopian future. Yeah. It destabilizes it, but not mm-hmm. in a way that I feel serves the piece. But I, I'm the psychology of humans and how they how they react under certain stimuli like that is fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. This was a good one. Yeah. I I recommend uh like all of these books were great. So they all sounded great. So that's it for dance a little closer, friends. I uh oh, just so you know the yeah. the cast recordings on Spotify. If awesome. you all are interested in listening to it, I really love the overture. Great. I could listen to that on repeat. Oh, I love a good overture. <laughs> so I'm I'm just going to read, I'm just going to end in reading the beginning of Frank Rich's critique because it's actually pretty positive, the beginning. Oh. Um, although Dance a Little Closer, the, no, the new musical at the Minskoff numbs the audience with almost every step. I won't pretend that I didn't get, it didn't get to me. That happened just before the second act when the able conductor, Peter Howard, led his band in a brief medley of the score. Listening to Charles Strauss's music as lively orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick, anyone can plainly hear that it contains some pretty melodies. Remembering some of the Alan J. Lerner lyrics that accompany them, especially those for the romantic title song, I was reminded of why Lerner is one of our musical theater's top professionals. Mm. And then it gets... He gets into the rest of, you know, which is not <laughs> great. He says it's bad. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But, funny. you know, this is why we do this show, right? Is because yeah. Alan, like I said, he had three Tonys and three Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like we all know Charles's most famous show, Annie. Right. Yes. And so, like, if there's people who we can look at and say they were extremely successful, but they didn't succeed at everything. Right. And failure didn't stop them because, like I said, this was like Alan had a string of misfires and he still was like, but no. The thing Mm -hmm. is, the longer your career, the more opportunity for you to fail. That's the truth. Geeks, I'm sorry. I did mention like a little piece of a letter that I was going to read after um, Dance a Little Closer misfired. That Alan sent to one of his (laughs) friends who is a book author and she sent him an early copy of his book and he was lauding how much he loved the book. He said, for myself, you know, alas, (laughs) 
I would rather have Liz than all the hits in the world. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> really sweet. Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. So that's it. <laughs> Yay. Ba-dum-bum. And Come uh, again. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Yay. <laughs> Bye. Cast Theater Geeks Anonymous. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGABWAY and on Facebook at Theater Geeks Anonymous. And if you want to tell us how much you love us or you have a great story about one of the shows we've talked about, drop us a note at TGABWAY at gmail.com. Until, Until next time, time geeks. geeks. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.